Principal Matters Podcast, episode 271. Hi, friends. This is Will Parker, host of Principal Matters, the school leaders podcast, where each week we bring you inspiring, innovative, and imaginative ideas for your own school leadership. This week, I'm joined again by my co-host, Jen Schwanke, who is a leader at Dublin City Schools and the author of two great books for school leaders. Jen Schwanke, welcome back to Principal Matters as we are taking on another episode of Answering Principal's Questions. And this week, uh, we have a question about school discipline. Yes. Hi, everyone. Um, You know, Will, we haven't talked about this offline, but when you and I first started podcasting together, we had an idea. We wanted to do like a hints from Heloise, except have it be for school leaders. And look, here we are. We're, we're kind of doing that. I'm really enjoying these episodes we are doing where we address specific questions from listeners because I think they're real time. I think they're very, you know, they're from people who are living the work. So this one in particular, the question was how do you structure discipline um, so that punishments fit the crime? And you and I talked about how we don't really like the, the use of crime with students. And so we're going to dig into that a little bit. But I think the reason that this episode's timing is so perfect, we're in November, the novelty of this new school year has worn off. Students might be getting a little squirrely. They might be making bad choices. And, you know, from the seat I sit in, these um, choices can be very minor or they can be life altering. And at the crosshairs of that is the principal who understands the student and understands the um, inevitability, if you will, of bad choices. And then you have on the other side, the handbook and the parent and the, um, the, the school culture that really plays into decision-making about discipline. So, you know, this, this question seems pretty simple, but it's very multi-layered. There's a lot to talk about in terms of making decisions about students and, and what consequence really does fit the discipline infraction. Yes. And, and there's so many words, Jen, that you and I think about whenever we think of a question like this. And it is hard because discipline is one of those things that in school leadership, you never, ever stop encountering situations that you have you think you've done it all until the next day. And right. then you run into a situation that you're like, whoa, I have never encountered this one yet. Right. Um, and some of those things that you encounter consistently over time, they do get a little bit easier if they're if they become commonplace, like, you know, how do you manage attendance situations or tardies, or how do you manage somebody who's been disrespectful but might need to apologize? But then sometimes you run into those situations that are just outside the box and nothing within the handbook seems to address it. But just to circle back to some of the language you and I were using at the beginning of this conversation, we say discipline for a reason. And, and the reason that we say that is because whenever you're working with students, first of all, always think of it in terms of how would I want the school responding to my own child? Well, how do we want them responding to my own child? We want them to help our child learn from their mistakes so that they can grow and not make those same mistakes again. And and if there is a consequence that it matches what that mistake was, but also still provides them the opportunity to keep learning and growing and hopefully staying connected to their school community. Unfortunately, you and I have been involved in school leadership long enough that we both have literally encountered kids 
committing crimes. And so right. we've dealt with situations that involve police action. We've dealt with situations right. that involve danger on campus. We've been, we've been involved in situations that devout, that involve possession of things that kids shouldn't have at school. So for some listeners, you guys do deal with situations sometimes that are criminal. And sometimes you deal with situations among adults stepping into your buildings that create those same kinds of scenarios. So this is a broad question, but to, but to, but to circle back to the, what I believe is the heart of the question is how do we make sure that what we're doing is helping students, not hurting them when it comes to discipline? Well, I think an important thing to remember, and I'm going to give credit for this comment where it's due, and that is my current superintendent, Dr. John Marshausen reminds me all the time that discipline, the word itself is a Latin word for pupil, for to teach, to learn. Discipulus, look at me trying to speak Latin. I can't do it, but it means to teach. And so discipline really needs to be something where at the end, somebody has learned something. And ideally that someone is the student. And, you know, I have really evolved in how I think about discipline. When I first started as a teacher, I had, I only had to pull on my lived experiences at the time. Right. And that was a model of a rural school district where any student who, who broke the rules was kicked out. It was that simple. It really was that simple. And as I started to teach and I started to think about the human being behind these choices, and I started to look at a world where there really truly is a pipeline. Um, you know, there's data, there's research showing that there's a pipeline to prison in, in certain minoritized populations. And so we really have to be careful about decisions that we make um, about students and the decisions they make because it can really be something that affects them for many years. And I think the conversation is very, very different with students that are very young, as opposed to students who are maybe older and have had two, three, four, five, ten 10 different discipline infractions. And there's been a lot of interventions and we haven't seen a response. So I do want to acknowledge how difficult this this is, this process is, and that the protocols and policies that drive us are sometimes very prohibitive. So, um, you know, I, I don't mean to make it seem simple when I say we need to teach something when we make discipline decisions, mm -hmm. but we really do. <laughs> yeah. There's well, some tension there. I agree. And, and I think teaching is an important part of it. And, and Jen, for, um, for principal managed listeners, I, I, I want to get practical for just a few minutes, too. And I'm actually going to refer to something that I had written several years ago when I was trying to think of just some simple tips that I had been learning when I was still serving as an assistant principal, because you remember those days, secondary assistant principals do a lot of discipline. And so these were kind of my little notes that I would keep for myself when it came to things to keep in mind when it came to discipline for school-wide um, behavior. And so I'm just going to share eight quick little things, Jen, and, and feel free to jump in as, as you would like. But one is, and these are going to be no-brainers, Principal Matters listeners, but I just want to say them um, to make sure they got stated. One, make sure that you create high expectations, whatever your discipline standards are in your school. Schools run best when students and teachers and families know I, we have high expectations for our kids, academically high expectations, behaviorally high expectations. We want the best, the best behaviors, because these are the kinds of kids that we expect in our schools. Two, if you are assigning consequences, then it's really important that they fit the infraction. So if a student, for instance, is late to class, 
you know, the, the, the consequence for that needs to be consistent, what, what, whatever that is. And those need to be decided before school ever begins so that you have consistent consequences for things like lateness or um, absences without permission. And then, of course, as the, con the consequences increase based on the behavior. So if you have a student whose behavior is a harm, to someone else, then obviously the consequences will be higher because the, the consequences increase with the infractions. And it's important for you to try to set as many of those decisions before school begins. And I know a lot of you are already working in settings that have student handbooks and spell things out in terms of those. But if you don't, it's important that you, that you spell those things out in advance so that you can do number three, which is be as consistent as you possibly can. Now, consistency doesn't mean that you always do the same thing, but it means that you're firm and fair and consistent as much as you possibly can. And there's going to be common things that happen throughout every single day and week where you can consistently enforce those expectations. When you run into those unexpected things like we talked about before, then you can pause if there's not a rule in the handbook for that and decide, hopefully with some shared input, um, how to move forward uh, accordingly. Four, this is this is where consistency gives place to, I would say, use creativity when necessary. Because sometimes I've worked with kids, Jen, who they don't have a ride to school or they don't have a parent who can pick them up for an after school discipline or something like that too. So maybe I created a lunch opportunity for them or maybe there's some kind of cleanup duty that we could do together. I, so think about creative ways that kids can still um, be implemented a consequence that doesn't always match the same thing that every other kid gets, depending on their accessibility. Uh, five, and you've already talked about this, discipline with dignity. Your politeness, even in your firmness, translates that you still love kids even when you're making them do things that they don't necessarily want to do. And that goes a long way when it comes to school discipline. Uh, six, document your discipline which means that as you're doing the things that you're doing throughout the year, document them specifically because you need that data to look back at later to decide what trends you're seeing. And you mentioned those things too, Jen. Are there situations that you're handling throughout your school that might be targeting certain populations more than others? Your data will help you figure out where you need to continue to grow. And then the last two, make sure the discipline is, is from the heart of serving and teaching. How can I help this child understand and this young adult understand how to become a better person? And then last but not least is just communicating trust because whenever kids break trust, you got to be frank with them. You broke my trust. You broke the trust of your teacher, your school, your parents. But trust is regained through relationships. And you can regain trust by doing the things that you're, you're being asked to do. And so I think it's important when we discipline that kids know we still like them. We, we can still trust them as they gain our trust and that we're in this together. So I know I just ran through those really fast, Jen, but I, I, those were some notes I had handy that I wanted to just add to this conversation. Well, and you talked a lot about the um, interaction and the relationship with the student. I think principals also sometimes get gummied up with their relationship with the teachers because a lot of principals, myself included, think that if they make a decision about discipline that pleases the teacher, that that's the best choice. And what I would argue is if you consistently make decisions, as you just said, Will, that are fair and that are consistent, then that's what the teachers will begin to count on. And then they won't feel that they need to offer an opinion on 
what's going to happen to a particular student. They trust, right? They trust that you'll do a full investigation and that you will make the, the decision that's best for the student. Um, I think this is especially challenging for new principals because um, teachers watch very closely how discipline is managed in, in the office. And if they believe in their mind that something should occur and it doesn't, then they don't feel that they're, um, they're being supported. And we know it's much more complicated than that. We know um, anybody who's ever investigated a discipline infraction knows that the minute you start investigating is the minute it gets complicated. There's always emotion, history, um, some sort of a trigger, some sort of an antecedent that, that has led to this place. And the teacher may not know all of those pieces. And then right when you think you've got it all wrapped up, you've got things figured out, you've got the paperwork done, then you call the parent and you hear a whole other perspective <laughs> and you think, oh my gosh, there's just so many layers to it. So, you know, I, I think that principals would do well to not worry so much about who will be pleased or displeased by the decision. What I do is I... Um, you know, I don't do as much discipline anymore, but it used to help me to try to think of like a clinician. If I were someone in a, you know, in a setting where all I had were the facts, what would I decide? Then that's my clinician's decision. And then I let in the details, the antecedents, the emotion, the backstory. I let those in and I weigh those and see if they changed my clinician's perspective. If they did, fine. But if they didn't, then I always know that um, I have a solid decision that was made before I let all the other stuff in. Yeah, that's so good. And let's let's pause for just a moment too, Jen, because um, most school leaders at some point in their journey, no matter how hard they work to be consistent and to build trust and to be fair-minded and to... Um, and to provide consequences to discipline, not punish, they're still going to have pushback, right. whether that's from a parent or whether that's from their district or whether that's from another, it could sometimes be another staff person within the school that doesn't always agree. And sometimes the in the, the hardest situations, there may even be appeals to the decision that's being made that go beyond the principal. And so in that structure that every school leader steps into, whether it's in a small or large setting, there's always different kinds of structures that exist for parents pushing back or kids pushing back or others pushing back on disciplined decisions. So I want to pause there for just a moment too, Jen, because sometimes this is not something we often talk about openly, which is, you know, how do you manage those discipline situations when they go awry? In other words, maybe you haven't made any wrong decisions, but suddenly you're getting all kinds of pushback and you've got people that are going over your head. What, what suggestions would you have to principals to keep in mind as they're navigating those tricky waters? I'm going to go back to what you said earlier about documenting and taking notes. I think that really helps because what happens, especially when there's pushback is you begin to question yourself and you begin to think, well, wait a minute, what, what was it that that student said, or what part of this investigation made me think that this was a appropriate consequence or whatever. And so you want to be able to go back and reference those. And again, sometimes pushback is driven by emotion, not by facts. And so again, I'm going to say, you know, to be a clinician about it and to say, okay, here were the facts and here's what led me here. That will really help to at least tell the story because you're right. Sometimes appeals go higher. And so let's say a principal makes a decision and it ends up in the superintendent's office. That superintendent's going to pick up the phone and say to the principal, what were you thinking? And it's great to have an answer that is based in fact, not feeling, and that is 
supported by existing district policy. It also is important to have all that paperwork in line. And I know most, most principals already know that, but you can, you can have an airtight case for a discipline decision. And if the right paperwork wasn't signed at the right time, the whole thing gets chucked anyway. So um, the other part of your question is something I wanted to mention. And that is what if it was a bad decision? What if, you know, it was, it was a Friday afternoon, this kid had done something for the sixth time that week, everybody was done, everybody was tired. And you said, you know what, kick him out of here, get him out. And you did all that. And then you thought about it over the weekend and you thought this is not right for that student. Is it okay to change your mind? And is it okay to walk it back? And in my, in my mind, the answer to that is it depends. <laughs> we should rename our podcast. Well, it depends. Um, it does depend though, because if the decision was a bad one, um, that's different than if you just don't, you, you just don't like how it feels. So you kind of have to go back and review your own work. And then there have been times where I have said, you know what, this doesn't, this doesn't fit. We need to think creatively, as you mentioned earlier, and, and think about how we can, have this be a teaching moment for this student rather than um, one where he's he or she is paying the price for a bad decision by the administrator. Yeah. And I just want to add some thoughts to that, Jen. Thanks for saying that. Um, first of all, I think it's important for leaders to keep in mind that the, the goal here is not winning. Right. If the goal is winning when it comes to student discipline or outcomes, or even when you get pushback and appeals, I know there's a part of me that's really competitive and I want to make sure that I've done it right and that no one can point out my flaws, et cetera. And so you should take pride, good pride in the sense of doing things correctly and documenting and following the handbook and making sure that you've been efficient like a clinician, that you've done good best practice when it comes to the way that you've implemented policy and treated students. But sometimes when you get pushback, um, you have to ask yourself that question, Am I is, is the outcome that I want here to win or is the outcome that I want here to make sure that what's best for the student is what actually happens? And most of the time, what you've decided will have been what's best for the student. Sometimes there may be compromise. If you've run into a situation where you realize that what you were hoping would be the outcome here was in a situation that was more nuanced than you realized. And so sometimes those take compromises where you have to pare back a decision a little bit, depending on how it goes when it goes above you too. But just some things to keep in mind when it comes to those kinds of scenarios. One, it's important that you have trusting relationships up and down the ladder of leadership within your school and district. So whenever I'm facing a situation or whenever I was facing a situation that I felt was getting tense or might become larger than just my office, I would be the first one to call above yes. me and talk to my leader and say, hey, just to give you the heads up, I'm sensing this might end up as a pushback or an appeal or a call to you. And I wanted to give you all the facts ahead of time so, right, that, you can right. have, so that you're not blindsided and so that you have, you've, you've heard it from me because I want to keep a trusting relationship going here. Um, the second thing I would say is that um, it's important for, um, if it's going to be a, a situation where you're not trying to win is that you ask yourself that question too, if you know, if I did make a decision here that was um, harsher than it should have been, or that I reacted in a way that was really emotional, not necessarily just based on policy, am I willing to to step into the situation and um, and negotiate some some compromise too? And, and I'll give you some data for to think about here too, Jim. We've talked about this before, but Dan Pink has a book called When W H E N, which is the science of timing, and he uncovers some very specific research about doctors 
and and lawyer not lawyers judges who the data shows make harsher decisions later in the day than they do in the beginning or the middle of the day and in in what he was trying to show in his research was that we physiologically as we get weary during a day we make harsher decisions when it comes to the how we treat the people we're working with than we do earlier in a day and i can tell you from experience some of the decisions i've made that have gotten pushback or that have i've had to rethink have been some of those decisions when it's the end of the day and i'm upset and kids are upset and you're just wanting a quick fast decision so you can move on and and wrap up what's whatever's happening at the moment and so principles are human too we have to we have to be able to just question our own practices sometimes and ask is this a decision that can wait because sometimes in in my own practice i started getting to the point where i'd call a parent and say you know what i don't really want to make a decision about what just happened in the moment because i'm a little heated to be honest and so let's set up a meeting tomorrow so we can talk about what just happened and we'll think about it, chew on it overnight so that we can get together tomorrow and and, and we can step into this situation together um, with with some with with some clear heads. And so um, so those are just some additional thoughts. Well, and I think some administrators are scared to do that, Will, because they fear that they won't they were are portraying themselves not as decisive or in control, but as weak and wishy-washy. And I think it's the opposite. I really do. I think a, a administrator who's in control and who understands that emotion can drive poor decision-making is always best to just say, you know what, let's pause. Let's think about this. Um, nothing's going to change overnight, except maybe some reflection on both sides, which is always a good, you know, that's always a win. Um, the other thing I do, you mentioned calling a supervisor and saying, Hey, let's talk through the facts. The other thing that can be incredibly beneficial is to call a peer, just a friend, you know, another principal and say, Hey, here's the facts. What would you do? And what I find is my peer will say, well, what they'll ask questions I hadn't thought of. So just as an example, what's going on at home? Has the counselor talked to the student? What is the relationship with the student and this teacher? Um, what are, what's the previous information on the student? And I may have looked into that, but not had to articulate it. And talking it through with a colleague or a peer will not only help me make the right decision, but it will help me be more eloquent when it does come time to talk to all the stakeholders are involved. Because you, you know, every discipline situation boom, there goes an hour of your time or eight hours of your time because there's a lot of communication that needs to happen. And so kind of talking it through with a peer will will um, prepare you for the conversations that are coming up. Oh, that's such good advice, Jen. And, and I'll just go ahead and say this directly to Principal Matters listeners. Um, if you don't have that peer or that person that you can pick up the phone and call, then that's one of the reasons Jen and I do these shows is to provide another opportunity for leaders to be learning together. So f- reach out. Um, you can connect with me by email at will at williamdparker.com. And Jen and I would be happy to answer your questions. You know, I have a question to throw out to your listeners, and this is something that they can just think about. I don't think there is a right answer, which is why I'm asking it. In um, my first book, I, I wrote that there are certain discipline infractions that should be zero tolerance. And when I wrote it, what I was thinking of was a weapon, um, or drugs or, or whatever. I thought, you know, zero tolerance. And I received pushback from a couple of readers who said in the business of children, there's never zero tolerance. And at the time I was offended. And then I've, I've kind of come around to, to think that maybe there's something to that. 
um, not long after that book was written, a student brought a knife to school. And I thought, okay, well, here we go. Well, he said he wept. He said, I was at Boy Scout camp this weekend. I didn't remember it was in my backpack. And I thought, here's why zero tolerance policies are tricky. And I'm not saying there isn't value to them. Please don't, don't misunderstand. I think this is an unanswerable question. And I think only with time and experience might somebody feel strongly about the answer, but it's worth thinking about for principals when they are investigating a, um, a really tough discipline choice that a student has made, because um, sometimes we like to say, oh, zero tolerance, but I think it's always worth digging a little bit into the story just to know it. Oh, I'm so glad you said that, Jen. And I'm just going to provide some practical feedback to that question, too, because in my experience as a secondary leader, we ran into so many situations that you and I both remember in the 90s. Yes. Zero tolerance became kind of the norm because of just fear, all the fears of what if a student brings something unsafe to school and we will just have no tolerance for that because we wanted to communicate to parents and community members that this was the safest place you could bring your child. And that all works really well in public relations until it's your child. (laughs) Exactly. Or until it's somebody's child who was like that Boy Scout bringing something into school that was not intended to harm someone else. One of the districts that I served in years ago created what they called a probationary contract, which was an agreement that they had that they wrote out ahead of time for situations like that, so that kids in situations, whether it was with something like a device or maybe in for an older student, it might even be a substance or something that they were caught with or in their vehicle, and these agreements were laid out ahead of time for a reduced disciplinary assignment based on some agreements that they would make for additional counseling or additional, um, sometimes open to searches um, throughout the school year, random searches to make sure that they were staying safe. So there were additional steps that they were willing to go through to return to school under this probationary status with an understanding that if they were to create a similar infraction moving forward, then there wouldn't be a probationary status involved. And I had left a district that used that kind of contract successfully. And when I stepped into um, the second district, they didn't have a situation like that. But I was able to talk to our superintendent and our school board to adapt a very similar policy. So leaders, you may be in a district that has or does not have something like that. Um, Those are the kinds of conversations that I think that are so important to have, especially in the spring and summer as you're stepping into a new, before a new school year, to decide things ahead of time. Like if we're going to be creating compromises on discipline, how can we do it so that it's as consistent as possible around our schools and so that we can give our leaders some options so that they're not stuck in situations where they're having to discipline someone based on a policy that they feel does not apply um, to the intention of the student or the families involved. And those kinds of agreements can look different from place to place. But but that was a really helpful initiative, um, Jen, in, in the way that we manage discipline. Right. Well, and, and really what it did is it put the student first and it put the goal of teaching the student first, which is, you know, that's, that's really what we want in the end. That's our outcome. Mm-hmm. Well, Principal Matters listeners, you know, just like a good classroom teacher, your school-wide discipline affects the rapport and the relationships that you have throughout your entire school community. And it's our it's it's the role of the school leader to model the kinds of ways we want our teachers interacting with students in their discipline too. So not only are these tough decisions important on in the day-to-day ways that you're interacting with kids, but it's also important for you to be modeling the kind of heart 
and attitude and actions that you're hoping your teachers can do as well. You'll never do it perfectly, but I do want to just encourage you to try to stay as consistent as you can with the policies that you have. And as you're identifying things that need to change or improve, then over time, you can begin to make those suggestions and hopefully move that same direction. But at the end of the day, it's always important to remember to treat every kid in your building as if they were yours, not by letting them off the hook, but by making sure that they have consequences that match those behaviors and that you're creating the kind of place where they want to come back to school. Well, yeah, because you can still get mad at them, right? We get mad at our own kids. You can still be (laughs) mad at them and disappointed, and you can still say, I'm going to need to take a walk around this building before I make a decision. (laughs) That's called good parenting, and that's called good leadership. Well, Jen Schwanke, thank you so much for giving time to answer these principles questions. And Principal Matters listeners, until next time, thanks for doing what matters. We hope you have a great week. Thanks, everyone. You can find other free resources like this one at my website at williamdparker.com.